When Confucius died, he was 72. And the Buddha, 80. Moses reportedly died at 120 years old. And Abraham, a very impressive 175 years old. Jesus died at the prime of his life. We don't have the exact dates, but he was in his mid-30s, somewhere from 33 to 36. And he died one of the most horrific executions known to man in the whole of history. We were singing about blood earlier. It's pretty grim. It's pretty gross, isn't it? We have... This, these Christians have this obsession with blood. And in taking the, uh, the bread and the wine, in the Middle Ages, Christians were accused of being uh, a cult of drinking blood. Why is it that we have this obsession with blood and death? Why is it that Christians celebrate this most horrendous death and mark it as the most important date in our calendar? Well, that's what I'm going to have a look at today. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to pray and just ask God to be present and guide us to the truth in his word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus, that you've kept uh, safe your word and that we have your word that uh, we can read it today and know your truth. Lord, help us to uh, understand what you have to say through it. In Jesus' name, Amen. On a parent's evening about 14 years ago, I told a parent, now the student was present, I told a parent that her daughter was not first set material. I probably wasn't as gentle in the way I put, put it. So she was in year seven, about 12 years old, and she was hardworking and bright and inquisitive. Uh, but she didn't find maths easy, and there were certainly better mathematicians in the class. Uh, and then they were set from year seven into, into year eight, so they were put into seven sets. And I said, this girl, she's not first set material, but she's very bright, etc. And I had to eat those words. The girl gritted her teeth and... And yes, with good humour, threw that statement back in my face. She worked hard for the rest of the year, and she managed to get into set one, the bottom of set one. But over the next couple of years, she continued to throw that statement back in my face. And she went on uh, to uh, get into Cambridge and study natural sciences. Um, I've lost touch with her, so I'm afraid I, I don't know uh, what she's doing now. But some people react like that. They, uh, they take a statement that you've said, and uh, I was, in this case, I was very happy to be proved wrong. I wonder how you would react if I was a t uh, your teacher and I told you that I was the only one who could get you a top grade. There would be some who would be very eager, e eager to listen to everything I said and to make sure they did everything I, I, I asked of them. The shrewder students, oops, yeah, the shrewder, sh shrewder students, the ones that like to question, these are the ones that I like, they would, <laughs> they would question, uh, they would like to question what I said 
and they'll probably be a little bit annoyed at my statement. Certainly the more rebellious ones. You're the only way I can get a top grade. And certainly parents would say, mm, well, not sure about that. And some of them would go out of the way to prove me wrong. Certainly if I was a student and I heard that, I would. Uh, and uh, I once told my A-level physics teacher, I'll get you your A, when he had a go at me. I, I had just fallen asleep in his lesson, so, and he was having a go at me. So I wasn't totally innocent in that. But that's the reaction sometimes when people make that statement. Uh, thankfully, I actually had a very good relationship with that physics teacher, and I went back to my old school to work alongside him. Um, now, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an outrageous statement. How dare he say that? How, the only way to the Father, the only way to salvation, the only way to heaven is through Jesus. What an outrageous statement. And certainly we see plenty of people trying to prove him wrong. How arrogant is that? How can he think that he is the only way? Well, we're going to have a look at that claim. If you've got your Bibles to hand, or I printed out some copies of the, the uh, texts. Uh, sorry, it's so tiny. Uh, but uh, I'm going to be looking at Luke 24 reading from verse 19 so do have those passages in front of me uh, in front of you so that you can uh, check what i'm saying i'd hate to misinterpret this if you disagree with me do come back to me afterwards and and you know, talk to me about it so reading from verse 19 concerning jesus of nazareth a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and but word before god and all the people so these two people are walking along the side of the road and a stranger comes up and walks beside them. And he seems not to have a clue what's been going on. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it, was now, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us they were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive some of us who were with us some who of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but him they did not see and he said to them jesus said to them O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now I don't have time to go through Moses and all the prophets. I have a friend back in London called Ziggy. 
That's a great name. His na name is Ziggy Rog Rogoff. He, is a, a he used to be a devout Jew. And when he was young, he's an incredibly intellectual guy, a mathematician, and I'm not just saying that mathematicians are, are, are but above everyone else, but far more intellectual than I am. But he went out of his way to debunk the myths. And he examined all of these prophecies and examined the scriptures, the, the gospels. And he was converted. And he became, uh, became a Christian and he now works for Jews for Jesus. Apparently there are 300, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus. As I said, I don't have time to go all through, through them, but I will have a look at the one we read earlier. So again, have a look down. We are in Isaiah 53. And while you're turning to that page, uh, we actually have copies of Isaiah that date well before Jesus. Many copies. The Dead Sea Scrolls was, that was, uh, was found, I think, in the 13th century contain uh, these, much of Isaiah, but especially these passages um, and these prophecies from chapter 53. And they date, they dated them, and they date to well over 100 years before Jesus. This was a prophet Isaiah that, was, uh, that lived uh, as the Jews were being exiled about 750 years before Jesus. So this prophecy is about 750 years before Jesus. So I'm going to read the whole of this passage. It's, it's only 12 verses. I'm sorry, that, but uh, I think it's important. And try to see whether you can recognize some of the things that are going on in this passage. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one who, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace, and his wounds, and with his wounds we are healed. <coughs> All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for generation, his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they gave him a gra his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put to, uh, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. 
the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. I'm going to leave it there. You can see why this is a prediction for the Messiah, can't you? You see, the people of Israel, about this time, when uh, just after um, Isaiah wrote this, had, well, in their history, they had broken faith with God time and time again. They kept disobeying God. They kept ignoring God. In effect, they were deemed unrighteous and therefore cast into exile. And this suffering servant was going to take the guilt of that nation upon himself. In fact, it's more than that. We can read it as we read through the Bible. We see from Adam and Eve, the problem isn't just Israel's disobedience of God. It's humanity's disobedience. God had created man, all of man, to be in a relationship with him. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's the things that we've done wrong. When you transgress, you do something wrong to that person. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's another word for wickedness. He was crushed for our wickedness. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And his wounds, with his wounds we are healed. And here is the offence of the Christian message. This is the thing that offends people about Christianity. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the wickedness of us all. You see, there is no room for pride as a Christian. Sadly, Christians are sometimes known for having this holier-than-thou attitude. If we read this right, there is no room for pride. As Christians, we believe that no one is innocent. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, his book, uh, Letter to the Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he goes on to say that we are justified by his grace. We, we sang the song Amazing Grace earlier. That word, grace... C.S. Lewis once said that that is what sets Christianity apart from every other faith or religion. That word grace is the gift of forgiveness through redemption through Christ Jesus. But you may say, what have I been, what have I got to be forgiven for? I'm a good person. And you'll look around like, I'm just the same as everyone else. I'm probably better than most people. But Jesus says there is no one good except for God. Stick up your hands if you drove here today. Okay. So I'm not going to get you to to keep your hands up, but I, I wonder how many of you actually went over the speed limit. I have to confess that, that I did on the way here. I was a little bit late. You see, there's that road that is just by Horizon Hills, isn't it? Four lanes wide, and at some parts, it's 70. Nobody goes 70 across, you know, in that road. People would be honking their horns if you went at 70 in that road. It's four lanes wide, and it's 70. And you may think, well, everybody does that. 
It's a stupid law. But that's the sin of pride. You think that you are better than those people who put that law in place. If you were, you know, if there was a camera there and he took photos and you were fined, you wouldn't be arguing, but this is a silly law. You wouldn't be arguing, I didn't know. The signs are obvious there. You look around, it's very easy to look around as you say everyone's doing it. And let's take very simply the Ten Commandments. In this last week, how many of us have lied or deceived somebody? How many times have you dishonoured your father or mother? How many have actually talked to their father or mother this week? I have to say, yeah, probably not. How many times have you been jealous of somebody? How many times have you lusted? And that's not to mention keeping the Sabbath holy or making idols or putting God first. You look around and you think, I live a good life. I'm as good as everyone else. But you see, you're not comparing yourself to those around you because we're all guilty. When we compare ourselves to the perfect creator God, we find ourselves guilty. I don't know about you, but uh, I think we've all met that person, haven't we? The, the, the goody two-shoes that is just really lovely and nice. The person who can't tell a lie, or who the person who does drive at that speed limit, and you get frustrated with them. The person who spends all of that time at work, working. Horrifying. And what we do is we, we take the mick out of them. We tease them, don't we? The one who never swears. And we try and make them swear. The one who's sweet and nice and would never hurt anyone. They can be a little bit sickening. Why? Because they show us up for who we are. Why? Because it's just a little bit too perfect. Because we're not. When we compare ourselves instead of another person, because we're all human and we're all failures. When we compare ourselves to the perfect creator God, we find ourselves guilty. How can we believe, in fact, that's what we should believe in, shouldn't we? A perfect creator God. How can we believe in a perfect creator God who can also tolerate us as imperfect, wicked people? How can he stand our selfishness and disobedient natures? When we live up with our families, we get to know them so well. And it's very easy to get into those arguments. That's because we know them. We see them for who they are. We have to, we're forced to accept them as selfish and, you know, uh, annoying people. If we're honest, we are too. For us to gain this forgiveness, freely offered, we must first admit that we have gone astray, that we have lived our lives in selfishness and often willful ignorance, 
of the perfect creator God who wants to be in a relationship with us. I talk about that, the roof of the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo's picture of God straining every sinew to try and reach out to us. And man is just laid back and holding out his hand. God wants to have a relationship with us. You see, some of us will react and say, how dare you say that I am living a wicked life? You don't know me. And so this forgiveness, it's not for you. At least not for now. The Christian message is an offensive one. Back to the passage, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so opened not his ma- he opened not his mouth. The Jewish people would have recognized this reference to a sacrificial lamb. Before exiting Egypt, in the great salvation from the slavery in Egypt, God commanded that each family sacrifice a pure, unblemished lamb. And because of the blood and death of this lamb, there's that blood again, the life of the firstborn of each household was saved. The sacrifice of that lamb was substituted for the life of the firstborn. This Messiah, this Christ, this Jesus, like a lamb, was sacrificed for the life of each of us to take the guilt and the sin upon him. As Jesus died, the sky turned black for three hours as the wickedness of the world throughout all of history, before and after, until now and in the future, is laid on him. The death that we deserve because of our wickedness in the face of a perfect God was laid upon Jesus. And there again we see the offence of the Christian message. We are all wicked. We have all gone astray and Jesus died to save our lives. And to give us a promise of eternity and adoption into his family. None of us deserve this thing called grace. But there it is, freely offered to us. So bring us back to my analogy. If I claimed that I was the only one who could get you a top grade in your exams, something I would never do, I promise, some would react aggressively and angrily. But the question is, if I'm doing this, I'm offering you this freely, Why wouldn't you at least investigate my claims? Would you just dismiss me as a madman? Probably because you have some idea that other people have got a top grade. Okay? But surely you'd want to investigate this. Because if I can guarantee you one, wouldn't you want to grasp at that and take that? And for those who are not sure about the Christian claims, I would encourage you to look at the evidence. The author of the account that we read earlier is Luke. We know that he was alive when Jesus was alive. I recently read uh, some kind of uh, news article and it started to, you know, I kind of switched off as soon as it started to claim that the authors of the the Gospels were not, you know, were alive far later. 
and that historic, uh, historians have disproved all of this. No, I've looked into the evidence of this. We have the manuscripts that date back. We have, they would have had what we have almost virtually what we have as a Bible within the, you know, the first century, within uh, 100 years of Jesus' death. He was alive when uh, Jesus was alive, but not, we don't know whether he was in Jerusalem. We know that he was a doctor, and it's obvious if you read his accounts that he records his uh, findings with precision and, a de and detail as a doctor, uh, uh, and you could see his uh, doctor training there. We see that he records things that others, their other accounts do not, like uh, the water and the blood being separated when the spear pierced Jesus' side. This is evidence that Jesus had already died. We see him, uh, sorry, um, we, he writes that the first witnesses to the resurrection are women. Now, you may not think much of that, but the Jews would never have taken that into account because the testimony of women was not valid. We have the accounts of the other Gospels which corroborate his account. And historians say that the, the minor discrepancies among the, you know, the four accounts actually uh, um, validify, lend credibility to this account. And actually, if you read the four accounts, you can see, if you, yeah, even with skepticism, you can see that they could be of the same, same instance. Historians say that those minor discrepancies actually lend credibility and lend credibility to the fact that they are from four different sources. It used to be that they believed that the, three, the first three Gospels all took their notes from Peter. We see Luke going on missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul, facing riots and stoning and the very real possibility of death. The evidence is there. There are many accounts of other people who have looked into these accounts of Jesus. The evidence for the very real historical figure and they have come to the conclusion that these claims must be true. I love to discuss and argue, and sometimes do pick a fight, uh, with you know, debates, discussions, civilized discussions, with uh, friends on Facebook and with colleagues. I find it fascinating that many scientists are sometimes the quickest to dismiss Christian claims as foolish mythology, and yet they haven't looked at the evidence. Isn't that about the most unscientific thing that you can do? Just straight away dismissing the evidence without even looking at it. Even the great atheist, Richard Dawkins, he loves to debate with uh, a mathematician John, called John Lennox. Go and look it up on YouTube. They are great you know, debates. Um, a little spoiler, John Lennox actually usually comes out on top uh, in these exchanges. John Lennox is a, is a Christian. In fact, he is the only one that Richard Dawkins will, uh, will debate with because he finds everyone else to be trivial and foolish in his kind of very uh, dismissive way. But John Lennox is poised and he is eloquent in his arguments. He is reasoned and sound and logical. And the evidence is there. 
I would recommend uh, a couple of books. One is The Case for Christ. Um, it is very readable. I'm rubbish yeah, when I'm working at reading books, uh, it's, but it's very easily easy to pick up and read through. It has short chapters. Uh, but it's written by a legal journalist who retraces his steps of when he went to try and disprove the Christian claims. Yes, there is. Uh, so the other book I would recommend is Who Moved the Stone? Similar kind of book. So yes, there is very uh, real historical evidence of Jesus and that he claimed to be the Messiah. And we have uh, the historical evidences of, of eyewitnesses who laid down their life for that claim. Who many years after Jesus had died, and lest we forget, rose again, went to their deaths, still claiming this to be true. You may think, there have been many cults where there have been mass deaths and suicides. But every one, if you look at every single one of those, there have been people, people close to the cult leaders who have come out years afterwards and denied the claims and come out with the stories uh, of the brainwashing or cult tactics or the terrible things that this cult leader's done. This is not true of Jesus. History claims, uh, sorry, history records that 10 of the original 12 disciples those people who lived closest to Jesus for three years were executed in pretty grim deaths for their faith. The two others were Judas who betrayed Jesus and then committed uh, suicide in his shame and John who uh, died of old age as far as we know, I think. You see, there is the evidence there and you would be foolish not to have a look at it. I'm going to end with what is probably the most famous passage in the Bible for good reason. Jesus speaking in John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believed in, uh, believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, our wickedness, our selfishness, our disobedience, our willful ignorance of God and the evidence condemns us already. This God who wants to create a, a relationship with us who wants us to have eternal life. You see, to some, these claims are arrogant and offensive. But to those who believe, even despite this great and terrible price, this horrendous death that Jesus had to give to, to die, that gives us life and a promise of eternity with God. For Christians... Easter is a great celebration because of that. We have life. Death has been defeated. And it's also a time to reflect and be grateful.
So if you're here today and you haven't decided, then I would urge you to look into the claims of Jesus. The choices of condemn, uh, condemnation or life are pretty clear. That alone should give you pause for thought before you act with aggressive disagreement. Please come and talk to somebody. Uh, come talk to me about it if you want, or Pastor Craig. If you're a believer here, then I would encourage you to keep reaching out to your friends and your loved ones. If they are not saved, then eternity will be a little bit lo more lonely without them. Keep praying for them, keep reaching out to them, gently and with love. Let me pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us and we pray that you continue re revealing yourself to those who are here. We pray that, uh, that those who would look into the evidence for you find you as you have promised. Help us to have faith in that. Make yourself clear to us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.